Hello, everybody. It's Charlie. This is uh, To Hell and Back, uh, the podcast that tries to get at the elements that help people make it through hell and get out of hell in their lives. And uh, it's uh, podcast number 47, and it's spring today, um, the 20th of March. In Massachusetts, it's actually sunny out and in the mid-50s, so it's amazing after, because uh, we're surrounded by snow and ice, but we also see signs of spring. So, um, All right, all right. First, I want to get started by thanking people who have sent me um, emails to give me feedback about the podcasts. It's incredibly helpful to me and gratifying to hear that people are actually using the podcast in so many different ways to be helpful. So I'm, I'm really glad about that. And, um, and people have made some suggestions. And I'm going to pick up on one and just let you know that my plan, uh, my best laid plan, if it doesn't go awry, is that uh, about once a month, I'm going to um, go on Zoom uh, which is a program where it's going to be possible for anybody with a computer to tune in and uh, visually and as well as uh, follow, you know, be able to hear me and, 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 and see me, but also interact with me. Um, and uh, I'm going to do the first one of those as a pilot next week. And uh, if so, if you hear this before next week, which you may not, I'll also put notif notification of this in the various places where I notify people about the podcast. But um, it'll be next Thursday rather than Wednesday and at 5.15 rather than at 4 o'clock. So Thursday, the 28th of March at 5.15. Um, and I will put the information out there about uh, the link, including I'll put it on my website, about uh, how to go on to Zoom in order to access this and it'll be a chance to have people ask questions or bring up comments and be able to discuss things that have come up in recent or even not so recent podcasts and um, it's we're going to see how this goes and then shape it from there so thank you for making suggestions like that it means we won't be having the podcast next wednesday afternoon um, all right so today we're, uh, I'm going to talk, I'm going to try to get at using some of the background of other podcasts that we've had and other things um, to start to name as clearly as possible some of the elements that look to me necessary for surviving uh, hellish circumstances and, and situations and, and, getting, uh, and, and moving, uh, recovering from them. Um, so I'm going to start with a, a couple of, uh, well, with one story, uh, and because I'm going to build step by step how I want to uh, identify these elements. Um, when I was a resident in psychiatry a long time ago, um, and I was at a VA medical center in West Haven, Connecticut, and uh, we would have a lot of Vietnam veterans coming in. But there was a time that was the man came into our inpatient unit where I was at the time working as like a third year resident or something. And he uh, was a World War II veteran. Um, and he uh, turned out he came in once in a while. He mostly functioned okay in his life. But once in a while he would uh, get into a state uh, where he was depressed and panicky and, and didn't feel like functioning anymore, wanted to die, really got emotionally pretty dysregulated. And then he would come, he would be hospitalized. And when he came in and I was interviewing him, um, and I was asking him about the origins of some of his problems, he just, uh, without it being clear what the relationship was to the story he told me, between that and the symptoms that he had, he just started telling me about when he was in World War II and he was overseas. And at a certain point, he had taken some people captive. Um, where I can't remember where he was. I wish I could. Um, 
And he was marching them in front of him. And he had his gun. And one of them uh, appeared, uh, he, he was frightened. And at one point he thought that one of them was going to be turning around and maybe attack him. And he shot the person in the back of the head. Sorry to be so graphic. But, uh, and killed this person who was a very young person, probably like a teenager. And, uh, and he told, as he told me this story, it was, it became very painful for him. And tears were coming out of his eyes. And, and he developed, while he told the story, a severe pain in his head, not a normal headache, but pain like right with a point right in the middle of his forehead and going like a knife back into his head. And that um, got really intense. And then he sort of had already told me the story and then he stopped talking and he just looked down. And in, in a matter of a few minutes, we were able to start talking again and he said the pain was gone and he felt a lot better. And within a day, he was discharged from the hospital. His whole mood changed. Um, it was just remarkable. Um, and it was a situation where just by um, uh, remembering, becoming aware and expressing a story that was unbearable to his mind because he felt so severely guilty about this and it had never gone away, and it, it came on again, and something must have triggered it to come back. So he told me that story, and so that's sort of story number one here. Story number two is actually a lot of stories condensed in one story. It's uh, Sigmund Freud, um, and it's the story that probably most people are familiar with, the general outlines, and there were a lot of specific examples, but the idea was in the late, in the 1890s and 1900s, when he was uh, developing psychoanalysis, um, and it started out with um, learning about uh, uh, that people who showed symptoms of hysteria at the time, which was a kind of a focal uh, emotion dysregulation, not like maybe some like borderline personality disorder, but uh, really. Um, hysterical symptoms of anxiety and uh, impulsivity and uh, intense emotions, sensitivity, um, that he uh, came to think during that time, he and a colleague, Breuer, came to think that, um, that it was much like the guy from World War II, that if you could awaken the memories of what he thought at that point in every case would re, were memories of sexual abuse in childhood, usually by the father or, or brother, um, that by going through that story and uh, discharging all of the emotions connected to it, that actually people then got much better. And that was really the cure. That was the, And it was uh, done to some degree at first under a hypnotic type of approach, but then without hypnosis. And it was really this, this same idea that if you can help somebody recall this unbearable story and bring it to full awareness and express it to the therapist, um, that, they, that you may be able to um, really move through it uh, even with a lot of emotional pain, and then move past it. And some of the symptoms, including symptoms of hysterical paralysis and so on, uh, would disappear. He over over time he changed the story. I won't go into the rest of the story about Freud, but that was a very early uh, root of the psychoanalytic idea. And uh, sort of it it comes across with sort of the the same idea, doesn't it? And I would say that after these two stories, the World War II vet and the Freud story, I would say this is my first main point today. My, the theme really is what do you do with an unbearable story, a story that is unbearable to your consciousness. And most of us have some things like that, but maybe not to the same degree. Um, and the idea is that uh, it suggests that awareness and expression of a, of a story, articulation, expression of it in some way, some form, and it being received by somebody else, 
that that is a kind of a uh, example of a natural healing process if it's allowed to occur. In fact, um, if that occurs in response to a, a bad thing that happens in your life, um, and you do uh, are aware of it, you do remember it, you do express it, it is received, uh, chances are much less that you would end up with PTSD, that this is a natural, like a psychological wound healing process. Okay. On to one of the stories from an early podcast that I did podcast with Cedar Coons, a DBT therapist and mindfulness retreat teacher um, in, who lives in New Mexico. And she talked with us, maybe some of you have listened to her, these episodes, about the death of her sister by suicide. Um, and, um, and for Cedar, uh, she... Uh, she is so it wasn't from a, a past memory it did awaken it did activate some painful things about her family and her family relationships um, but what it activated at the time was just that this was a, a unbearable kind of thing happening and she reacted by being quite active and involved going out to North Carolina where it happened um, managing a lot of family uh, and estate circumstances uh, um, engaging in uh, looking after uh, her adult nephews, her sisters, two children, both of whom were disabled, and her getting that being very meaningful and engaging um, for her. And she discussed the elements that helped her through this episode, which uh, was very painful in her life. Um, and one thing was, uh, that she emphasized was that uh, she did get actively involved in all of this. You might say she leaned into the problem rather than backed away from it. She also could rely on that she had a really supportive community uh, back in uh, New Mexico, and she stayed in touch with and involved with her community, and some of that was community of practice, of, uh, of meditation. She also could rely on her capacity to meditate, which she had developed to a great deal, uh, to a great extent, and so she had this skillful things that she could do. She also had meaningful work, um, and some of which was related to uh, suicide and the treatment of people who are prone to suicide. Um, so, And she also had time and space to experience what had happened, experience the pain, express the pain, go through some states of mind that were kind of disorienting, uh, and come out the other side. Um, so that was another uh, another story, and I would uh, add one more here that that's a little um, a different version of something that is somewhat the same. We heard the story um, in another set of podcasts from Natalia Garcia, uh, a young woman uh, pursuing uh, becoming a psychologist who. Uh, lost her two-year-old son overnight, she and her husband in Seattle, uh, with a completely unexpected death with no obvious cause and just a, a catastrophic event for her in the morning when they discovered him. And she discussed that with us. Uh, I recommend all of these, uh, if you haven't listened to these, but this one was particularly inspiring about how she handled this, you know, terrible event um, and I'll tell you what it came down to were sort of overlapped with some of the things I mentioned about Cedar Coons um, she had a supportive community she had friends she had close connections to uh, a bunch of mothers of two-year-olds that she had been connected with and she made great efforts to stay involved with them and to overcome some of the natural reluctance that some of them had to stay involved with her so she had this supportive community she also had a supportive husband that went through this with her um, and uh, and people uh, that she worked with that knew about it she also um, emphasized uh, the skills that she knew from DBT uh, since she was a DBT went through a DBT uh, um, what do you call it, practicum with Marsha Linehan, had learned the skills 
and used a lot of uh, skills such as radical acceptance, but then especially leaned into using um, the uh, skill of acting opposite the urge to uh, run away and uh, uh, and otherwise called exposure procedure. And she just started to take advantage of using the skill of exposure again and again and again, again, leaning into the pain, leaning into the cues that set off the pain rather than backing off. And so that was really important. Um, and also finding meaning uh, that she and her husband developed a, a project where people could uh, could uh, do kind things for for other people uh, in honor of their uh, deceased son, and that project goes on. So uh, once again, um, I guess the theme here, and I'd say maybe this is theme number two. If theme number one was that you need awareness and expression and reception uh, to process. Uh, an unbearable story and how healing that is. But then number two is what do you, you know, you get a little more detail about somebody's life and you realize that ain't so easy, uh, to do if it's a really unbearable story like, like these are. Um, and so in order to express these things, you need to have in place some other things, uh, that come up in those two examples. One is that you need supportive relationships social situation, even if it's just with one person, but you need to not be abandoned at these moments, which can sometimes be difficult because people can shy away or be vicariously traumatized themselves by your own trauma. And then you're, then you're, 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 you, you lose people rather than gain people at a time that you need to maintain these supportive relationships to help you through this. Another thing is um, this reference to skills, and skills could be a wide range of capabilities, whether it's the mindfulness practices that Cedar Coons told us that she used after her sister died, whether it's the exposure skills and radical acceptance and, oh, and, uh, and uh, observing one's own emotions and letting them come and go, as we heard from Natalia Garcia, but, and also with other people, it might be the skills of tolerating distress crisis survival, self-management, dealing with people. But it's sort of having a, a, a net of skills that helps support you through these uh, crushing blows or intense emotions. And third thing that comes up again and again is meaningful activity. It might be meaningful work or some kind of other meaningful activity that helps you stay focused uh, on something meaningful to you as you go through this. So these three things, sort of relational support, some types of skills, and some types of meaningful activity, seem to be common across not just these examples, but many others. And I would call that the scaffolding that you need to have in place. You need sufficient scaffolding in order to make it possible for you to do the processing um, that, that, they, that, that I talked about with the uh, World War II veteran or with Freud. Um, so... But let's, let's move on from that because what if your life circumstances, the nature of your environment, uh, early environment, current environment, in transaction with your, um, your, oh, the nature of your own temperament and, uh, and, and your characteristics, what if that, those circumstances seriously interfere with being able to build that kind of scaffolding? And so you live with your unbearable story or unbearable stories not able to be expressed because if you tried to express them, um, you know, you don't have the supports or structure in place in order to fall back on, in order to support you while you do that. And so you find all kinds of other, you end up in all kinds of other circumstances. You have chronic and severe emotion dysregulation where you might be uh, thinking about suicide or trying it. You might be cutting yourself. You might be using substances. You might be having an eating disorder, um, and uh, and 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 any number of other problems that really result from uh, not having that kind of scaffolding and not being able to process that kind of story. And things just remain like in a chronically unresolved state. Um, I saw a play. Uh, just uh, last week, called The Sun, S-O-N, 
and the, the story in the play is an example of this, of a, of a person who was a late teenager, 16 or 17-year-old teenager, the only child of two parents who had gotten divorced after the father had an affair and, and the father now being married with the former mistress and, uh, and, and, and has a baby. And there's a divorce that's taken place. And the son, who had been doing reasonably well in his life, his life is now absolutely derailed. He is uh, depressed. He is uh, panicky. He has stopped attending school. He's begun to cut himself on his arms to relieve tension and to get through the day. Uh, he can't decide whether to live with his mother or father. His mind goes back and forth. Um, and, uh, and his life journey has been totally derailed by the way his parents handled this. And, um, and they were at this point during the play, it sort of unfolds from there. Um, they're preoccupied with their own problems and their own life situations to such a degree that it's, that, uh, that they just, they're just hoping that he'll shape up. Uh, that this will just be a little blip and he'll go back to school and he'll get motivated again and he'll get out of being depressed. And they talk to him that way, like the father especially talks to him like, come on, you know, the bad things happen in people's lives. You've got to like ride with it. You've got to get yourself back up. You've got to stay on track and get back to school and, and all of these things that uh, we can imagine somebody would say and that we've probably been there ourselves. But um, as, as if you can get yourself back uh, on the rails um, by a sheer force of will. Um, they're worried about him. They're frustrated with him. They're wanting him to behave himself because they're already having enough difficulty in their lives. Um, you can see him during the play, and it's pretty realistic, I thought, as somebody who's known a lot of these situations, uh, and with an amazing young man as an actor. Um, you can see him hanging in there. It isn't like he immediately bails out. He he stays in his room, but then he comes out of his room and he hangs out where his father is. And then sometimes he goes and sees his mother and then he wants to live with his mother. And so he keeps being there in a position where you would think he might be able to acquire this relational support that he needs or to start doing something with them that's meaningful or uh, acquire some some way to cope with this um, or be sent to therapy, which they never send him for therapy. Um, or, or for them to uh, not just be telling him to shape up. Um, but opportunity after opportunity goes by, and it's painful to watch it. Uh, and, and sometimes they ask, what are you feeling? How are you feeling? Tell us how you're feeling. And when he has no words for it, they get impatient. Come on, we're asking you how you feel. They felt that they were trying to, in a short, short in a quick way, ask him how he... But he, he didn't, and what was obvious when watching is that he didn't have language for it or he couldn't just force himself to say how he's feeling. And then he would get very frustrated with them and they'd get very frustrated with him. And the whole system was stuck. He wanted his parents to get back together. That's what one theme that became obvious. And he was very upset whenever evidence came up and, and he brought it up himself at one point that the father had actually had an affair while he was still with the mother and still with the son. Um, and that the father had done that and betrayed the mother and, and then moved out and betrayed the family and then married this other person uh, who the son seriously resented and was driven nuts around. Um, and what's striking from the perspective of the audience, once again, is that all through all of this, no one not once, just leaves him room to be, just leaves him room to express his feelings uh, without shoving them down. And, uh, and, and no one sends him to therapy. There's no one who even t brings that up, uh, even though they are supposedly an upper middle class uh, setting that might, might usually have thought of therapy when things like this are going on. The, he's, it turns out that he's skipping school and he's pretending that he's going every day for three months at a time and uh, with no contact between the parents and the school, which seemed a little unrealistic, but that it can happen. Um, but there's no one uh, with whom he expresses his private experience. So these ingredients that I've been talking about are not there. 
And, and then at a certain point, he has a more dramatic than usual cutting episode um, and uh, wanting to die. And uh, he's put in a hospital, and in the play, there's a psychiatrist that interacts with him and then interacts with the parents. And, uh, and the emphasis is entirely, even though it sounds very professional, it's entirely on, stab- quote, stabilization, a short-term hospital for stabilization, being in groups, uh, learning a few skills, uh, adjusting medications. Um, but, but never is there a mention of anybody uh, showing much interest in his private, uh, privately held experiences and feelings. We can see that he's boxed in. We can see that he can't express that, that, that there keep being potential opportunities. That he just, and then he convinces his parents, especially his father, to sign him out of the hospital against medical advice. And within a short time, within the next few hours, uh, he kills himself uh, in the father's house. And it's just a crushing ending to a painful play that was very well done and probably should be seen by mental health audiences. Um, so, you know, there's an example uh, of somebody not having the scaffolding that they need, not having the support and relationship they need, not having the skills that he needed, not having a meaningful activity that he's engaged in, and not having anybody actually even show interest in um, in what his story is, the unbearable story in his mind that has to do with the breakup of his family and his attribution of motivations uh, of betrayal and abandonment to his father, uh, who, who was not um, open to hearing this story, I think felt very defensive. Um, so I want to just uh, also, drawing back from a previous podcast, uh, about uh, where I just spent three sessions of the podcast talking with Melanie Harned about uh, the use of uh, prolonged exposure in DBT, where just in short, uh, she describes how, you know, it's there's a year of building the scaffolding from the way I'm talking about it, a year of going through standard DBT, of learning all these skills, and then, uh, and, 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 and acquiring a supportive, uh, and, and, or a good connection with a therapist. And then, uh, a pr- and then trying to be on track with doing something in your life, whether it's work or school. And then getting ready and getting oriented to going right at the unbearable stories for this person with PTSD, often sexual abuse, sometimes not, sometimes just the impact of a, of a, traumatically invalidating environment but going at these unbearable stories again and again is the essence of the approach it's like creating the conditions in which the story can emerge and then telling it again and telling it again and telling it again in a way that elicits the emotions and doesn't appear to be uh, you know supportive uh, in encouraging it's just sort of creates the conditions and then allows a person to tell the story and go through it and then how successful that treatment has been so that once somebody enters into that even if they've had several many episodes of childhood sexual abuse once they're ready to do it they have the scaffolding in place and they can do this that it's an average of 13 weeks before somebody actually is really doing better and there's some reason to think that the people who go through this actually are doing better than better, better than if they had gone through a, a full course of standard DBT, but not addressed uh, the unbearable story. So I just wanted to, to put that back there because I think that's a model um, So of, of what I'm talking about uh, at this point, that really we're talking now about three things being in place. Uh, there, there's, uh, da, 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 da. no, I guess, I guess not really, let me step back from that. I mean, I think you're getting the picture of what I think is a, a layered approach where you need several things and you really can't approach the story if you don't have the scaffolding and it takes a while to build the scaffolding if your life has been such that you haven't been able to get it in place and that it involves relationships and support and uh, and these other things. So now it sets the stage for me to turn for the rest of this podcast to a review of this incredibly rich 
three hours of conversation, at least from my point of view, incredibly rich, with Andrea Rosenhaft, who talked with me the last three podcasts number, episodes 44, 45, and 46. I don't, I certainly don't want to just uh, repeat what Andrea told us so, um, so with such detail. Um, but I am going to run back over a few things in order to capture what I think are some of the essential ingredients that, that build upon what I've already said and that came up in her story. So you would be best off if you had heard these, um, these other three hours or at least the second and third hour of these. Um, the first hour is more about her life up until she was first on an inpatient unit where, where I met her. Um, so how did she get through this? How did she find her way on a path of recovery? And it was not, it was an on again, off again, on again, off again path. It wasn't uh, by any, it was a roller coaster path. And that, that, you know, and that she's probably still coping with things that, that she has coped with before, but she's, she's just in a very different place now, as, as you could hear if you were listening to her. So, here are some major points that I think capture what a person needs. Let me say a bit beyond that. When I say a person needs, I don't just mean I'm talking to psychotherapists. I'm assuming that I'm also talking uh, to, uh, as a parent and two parents and as a friend and two friends. In other words, if you are trying to help somebody who has uh, encountered unbearable life circumstances or stories and they are stuck and it's some form of what I'm talking about today and some form of what Andrea talked about, maybe this could be useful whether you're the parent, the friend, the family member or the therapist for somebody or maybe if it's you yourself, it might give you some insight about uh, ingredients that you might need to, to get through hell. So, um, one ingredient that she commented on and it was so uh, striking was that what she said on her on the inpatient unit, the DBT inpatient unit that she came to in 1990, um, she found something that she had never had before and it was uh, crucial. She found membership and participation in a group of women, fellow patients on the inpatient program who had some overlapping problems with hers, um, living together, uh, talking together, sitting around in the day room, talking in groups, in, 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 in a way that she'd never experienced because no one was being criticized. No one seemed to be being judged or punished or shamed for sharing something. So the capacity to share things wider a wider and wider range of things that she had never been able to do before was there and that safety was something that she said she had never had before so that's such a that's all by itself such a huge uh, ingredient and part of the scaffolding that I was talking about and in that context that she was able to start to express thoughts and feelings which was not her style it was not modeled in her family and if anything, uh, you know, she had to watch out for what, 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 uh, reactions were going on in her family, especially with her father, who could be quite critical. Um, and so she was, but now she was finding this new thing, this new language of expressing thoughts and feelings to other people, and also hearing other people do the same, which I'm sure served as, uh, models for her. What else helped her? that she highlighted. Well, the acquisition of skills, behavioral skills, emotion regulation skills that helped her have concrete things to do to get through her distress. She highlighted the distress tolerance skills when I was talking to her, the, the skills of distracting yourself, for instance, and also the concept and the skill of radical acceptance of reality seemed to strike her as really important and memorable. Um, so building the scaffolding by having more and more skills so you know what to do when you're flooded by emotions. You know what to do when your thoughts are bothering you. Uh, you know what to do when you're in difficult interpersonal situations. Um, start to have things that you didn't come by naturally in your life. I think another ingredient that she didn't say but um, implied, and I would certainly say, was the amount of time that, 
this gave her, that she, there was no huge rush. Once she was in this hospital, and at that time, the reimbursement environment of uh, that kind of program made it possible for her to stay for, um, as, as it did for many of our patients, for somewhere between 6 and 12 months, which allowed her to immerse herself in the skills. So it was an immersive learning experience and, and allowed her to take the time to go at her pace in therapy. Um, another ingredient, support, just echoes what I was saying before, um, that part of this scaffolding is having relational support. And she had therapeutics, so she had a therapist that she found to be really helpful and supportive and uh, encouraging, and she had staff support and encouragement um, that she hadn't had that kind of thing before, even, even though she had had other hospitalizations for severe anorexia before that. <clears throat> There's also another thing that sort of doesn't necessarily fit with everybody, but I would highlight from hers. Part of her recovery seemed to um, be catalyzed by the fact that there were a number of angels, I will call them, in her life um, as she went through her journey. In particular, her relationship with her therapist uh, during our program and beyond our program, and then with the psychologist of the program who she had a real affinity with, Cindy, and who stayed encouraging and supportive for years, it sounds like, following that through emails when she was trying to move forward in a professional life. Uh, and her brother has always been an angel, even though it turns out she lost both of her parents one after another, that her brother has been uh, always uh, by her side and supportive. Um, and, th and then there was an angel in uh, in a halfway house that she moved on to when she left the inpatient program. And this person was a certain kind of angel. It was a particular type. Um, he was a, she was a counselor at the halfway house uh, where, where Andrea stayed for three years. And someone who herself had been through suicide attempts and through two years in a hospital program. And this person was very important to her as a model with whom to identify and to bond with someone uh, with terrible difficulties, but who stuck to treatment and stuck to her life and was in a course of recovery. And that sounds like it was uh, crucially important. So another really important ingredient. Um, meaningful work. She found her way eventually uh, with much support from her various angels to shift her career direction, which had been in kind of business and marketing or something in New York, uh, toward mental health. Um, which is, I think, a real statement of probably, though she didn't say this to me, but in other words, she turned her career direction in a way that was probably helpful to her because it trafficked in, um, in emotional expressiveness and understanding of each other and, and supportive relationships rather than sort of a more competitive and business-oriented relationship uh, system. Um, so she found meaningful work because she she became a licensed clinical social worker and worked in the city for 18 years um, and still is, is basing some of her work on that. Um, so, you know, Andrea, having begun to build a life based on meaningful work, on treatment relationships, on relationships with other people, having friends, uh, using skills, uh, having them on board and cushioning her distress with some of them still, the blows of life continued to leave her struggling. For instance, a big, big, big one. She was very interconnected with her mother, one might say enmeshed and codependent as it came out in her next therapy when they talked about it. But she was very dependent on her mother. Her, her mother was very dependent in some ways on her probably and had been very devoted to her uh, and was a, a, a very capable and brilliant person but died after a short course of pancreatic cancer after Andrea had acquired some level of stability. And, uh, but she was still struggling with anorexia. She was uh, now and then still having to deal with hospitalization. And when her mother died, uh, she became depressed and was hospitalized for that. And then she went through six hospitalizations in 18 months. So she had... Then, though she had acquired these skills and acquired supportive relationships, still she was vulnerable, and she had descended back into a kind of a dark chamber after, law, after the loss of her mother that allowed in almost no hope, almost no light. She stopped her meds. 
she stopped her therapy um and then um as it came along to 2005 and she was referred for a consultation to a uh a psychiatrist and psychoanalyst who uh, was part of the group with Dr. Kernberg in White Plains who practiced transference-focused psychotherapy. And this person she had a consultation with, who she called uh, Dr. B for our sake, um, she entered into into, uh, transference-focused psychotherapy, TFP, with Dr. B, a, a different model of treatment from DBT. Uh, and after the assessment and the recommendation and her treatment, uh, she then was given the details about the treatment contract with which she would have to agree if she was going to enter into this treatment. And it's interesting because I think it establishes a different kind of frame uh, than one has in DBT. I do think DBT and TFP both establish a frame. They both have a lot of details uh, that establish the uh, co- initial contract, um, and there is even some overlap in these. But there's certain distinct difference that I want to point out here because I think it set the stage for a different sort of treatment, uh, which helped her in a different sort of way. So this was an intense uh, contract, and it included things that she told us in the podcast, that if she got, as an anorectic person, if she went under a certain designated weight, that her therapist designated, uh, she agreed that she would enter a hospital. Um, Secondly, that if she were to cut herself, uh, self-harm, even a scratch, she agreed that she would see a medical doctor for assessment. It wouldn't be left up in the air. Third, if she were to try to kill herself, she could call the therapist um, and ask for help. And the therapist agreed she would do whatever was possible to help her save her life. Uh, But then after the episode, the treatment would be uh, terminated and she would be referred on to somebody else. Uh, That's very different than any DBT approach. And it, again, is another sort of steep um, consequence for behavior that's part of the behavior that's the presenting behavior, the problem. Uh, another feature, she could call the therapist if she was in an emergency, um, but only for a brief contact and probably in order to triage her to something of whatever she would need to do, but not for therapy on the phone, not for any long discussion, not for a consultation, and not like in DBT for a skills training uh, coaching call. So the contract provided, uh, I'm sure it, uh, this probably isn't everything in it, but you get the picture. It provided very clear, quite sharp consequences um, compared to what she had been used to before. And in some, uh, I think, the contract clarified the consequences that would attend to her problem behavior so clearly, uh, referring her to others in response to acting on these um, behavioral urges. Um, that some of the functions of the behaviors that the way they probably usually functioned in a therapy relationship were undermined um, to the degree that the function of the behaviors like self-starvation or self-cutting or suicide attempts, to the degree that the functions of those behaviors was to communicate distress through actions, the communication function was undermined by having clear uh, pre designated, medically-oriented consequences. Um, The contract removed the problematic actions from playing as much of a role with the attending with the usual sort of suspense and sense of crisis and battles of control uh, in the therapy relationship, which then created a kind of a a non, you might say, non-action space. It was an attempt to create a, a space for psychotherapy that wasn't going to be uh, uh, go, thrown back and forth by the intrusion of uh, problematic behaviors. Those behaviors were going to have consequences of their own that weren't going to disrupt the therapy. And that, um, whether one agrees with the nature of these consequences or not, and I think, uh, I'll, I think I'll get to that, but, uh, but I think it creates a different kind of space for therapy 
once the treatment began in TFP, she still went in the hospital several times, but she explained that she was more honest with her therapist about the behaviors that prompted being in the hospital than she had ever been with any therapist before. She really felt motivated to make this therapy work. She was frightened that this would be possibly her last chance. Pressure was high, and the contract was clear and steep, and that created a kind of a push towards her being upfront, being honest, and, uh, and, and taking responsibility. Um, things got worse, though, before getting better. After her first 18 months in TFP, she still felt quite shaky and had had some hospitalizations. She did say in the podcast that the contract was frightening, but that it did help, that she never did cut herself again after the contract was implemented, and she actually never went below the weight that would require hospitalization. Now, she goes on to talk about having made a suicide attempt in her ninth year of uh, TFP uh, with this same therapist, with Dr. B, ninth year of 11 years after her father died. So her mother had died years before, and now her father uh, died. And as she recounts it, her rage toward her father uh, rose up to the surface after his death to uh, a degree uh, that was really intense and that she felt that her rage toward both her father and toward Dr. B, and she felt that she couldn't express it directly. Uh, she fearing that Dr. B would then abandon her. Um, she was, you might say, consumed by her rage, and it was directed inwards, and she ended up hospitalized um, with a, a suicide attempt. Um, after some consultation, uh, showing some flexibility about the rule in the contract about suicide attempts, uh, Dr. B agreed to continue the treatment. Um, after a fair amount of discussion. Um, and so life went on, therapy went on. Now, she attributes her therapy with Dr. B as being a lifesaver. Now, what can we note or learn about that treatment that might be worth considering? And this is where it got really interesting, Andrea, talking about this, because most of this podcast has revolved around concepts and practices, strategies and skills that come from DBT, Though my earlier, uh, my beginning uh, in working with borderline personality disorder was uh, many years of working with Kernberg and doing TFP. So it was interesting to, to circle back to this. Well, here's what she said that I think is really important. The treatment and uh, the, 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 the being, a, first of all, being equipped with DBT skills, uh, Dr. B and she both felt that that had helped her, that helped her to regulate her emotions when things got intense in TFP, which was a twice a week therapy uh, that would move, uh, as I'm about to describe, uh, intensely towards emotions. And so she had on board the capacity to regulate herself when she got more intense emotions. The treatment was more confrontational than what she had been used to. She was confronted at times about not being spontaneous. She tended to be more reserved, uh, shy, uh, inward, uh, and retreat into sometimes saying, I don't know what I feel or I don't know what to say. But um, Dr. B's approach uh, would have none of that. Uh, she would uh, basically not let her retreat into a quiet withdrawal. She treated her as if she could be spontaneous and forthcoming about her feelings rather than giving her time and space and encouragement and waiting for her to be able to, to come forth. She just would cut right through that and, uh, and say, you can do this. Come on. Tell me, how are you feeling? Um, so she wasn't, uh, the DBT uh, therapist that she had didn't do it uh, that way, though I would, must say it wouldn't be inconsistent with DBT to do that. Um, she was confronted about keeping her mother on a pedestal. This had not really been challenged before, but Dr. B challenged the codependency of her relationship with her mother in a very direct and a very matter-of-fact way. The codependency um, was manifest both in the mother's increased attention and increased uh, evident caring 
when Andrea was showing more symptoms and problems. Um, and she realized while this, while this was being confronted and they were discussing it that her mom was probably also dependent on her in an unhealthy way. And she also felt that it would probably not have been possible to uh, deal with this um, and with the mom having not died. Uh, she would have just been too caught up in the codependency. Um, now, so so Dr. B was highly uh, uh, confrontational in, an, in yet another way that was very psychoanalytic in its nature was Dr. B's favorite phrase, as Andrea puts it, was, what comes to mind? Just she remembers repeatedly and with a certain European accent saying, what comes to mind? What comes to mind? You know, and, 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 and at one point when Andrea was hedging and withholding and saying something superficial, she remembers Dr. B calling her out by saying bullshit. Uh, so there was this quality of trying to cut through and push through, uh, and, and demand and expect that Andrea would share her feelings and her thoughts about things. In the therapy, she says that, uh, narratives emerged linking pa- her past with her present and therapy uh, about her father, about her mother, and about her intense emotions and how she had suppressed her emotions, about her uh, uh, her perfectionism and how her perfectionism had become a whole life theme that had started in, the, in her family, especially in relation to her father, um, and putting her mother on a pedestal. And all of this sort of was, was explored again and again to the point where she started to be able to... Um, notice her perfectionism entering into her self in the moment in certain situations and therefore being able to intervene better. Another thing she said about Dr. B that goes along the same direction, but I think it adds another wrinkle to this, is that um, at one point Dr. B specifically said to Andrea, uh, as Andrea said, four simple words that I'll never forget. She said, I can take it. Um, in other words, uh, when Andrea was backing off, uh, fearful sometimes that she would push Dr. B away or that Dr. B wouldn't be able to stand it and then would abandon, have to abandon her, she would take this stance saying, you know, I want to hear this. Tell me what you're feeling. You can do this and I can take this. And then that helped Andrea feel that she could tell her a wider range of things and that she could stru- trust her, that she would stick with her. It wasn't just this attitude of the four words. She said also that uh, Dr. B won her trust uh, through having what she called non-judgmental reactions. Um, Andrea would, would, when she would say certain things or do certain things, she would uh, scan Dr. B for disapproving reactions. And she said, and I didn't find any. Uh, It's not that she was overtly supportive, overtly validating, overtly encouraging, but she was just not judgmental. And so it created an atmosphere of, okay, I can say these things. Um, She also uh, highlighted that she felt Dr. B was very intelligent and not only could handle things, but could, you know, always had ideas of how to try to understand things. And so I want to say that at the core now, this is a sort of a summary statement of what Andrea found helpful, was what I would call a dialectic that came from Dr. B. On the one hand, Dr. B evidenced a willingness to aim high, to push hard, to be a straight shooter, to state high expectations, especially about Andrea's ability to express her thoughts and feelings, and to be, in a sense, daring, like an intrepid warrior, which is one of the metaphors that Freud would use about psychoanalysis, um, be sort of bravely pushing forward into the unknown, or, and in some cases in the unconscious. On the other hand, other side of the dialectic, was to be remain absolutely non-judgmental regarding Andrea's actions, regarding Andrea's statements, um, and regarding Andrea's expressions of her private experiences. And it's actually reminiscent to me of, of attending a training with Melanie Harned about DBT with prolonged exposure and watching how she would interact with the clients when she's asking them to tell her story, tell their stories of uh, sexual abuse that they had been through or other types of uh, trauma. Um, just sort of this absolutely non-judgmental, come on, continue, let's go ahead, 
which is sort of different from working with somebody before they have the scaffolding and you're trying to help them build structure, build skills, build connection, uh, where you might be more overtly encouraging and supportive. Um, so I think that uh, whether we're talking about uh, our relationship with a patient, a friend, or, 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 or our child as a parent, how do we uh, interact with problematic behaviors? How do we treat the reluctance of the other person to share very much, uh, specifically, too? And I think there is this kind of finding this balance, and it's different at any moment, but have the capacity to be daring and pushy, to ask a lot, to be demanding, and to be somewhat confrontational and with high expectations, and, and yet be completely non-judgmental, uh, which is really hard to do, uh, not to get too frustrated, not to get too angry, not to get too defensive, um, and inadvertently shame the person. It's sort of like, how do you just do that? Just be there with them asking them to do something and then waiting for them to be able to do it and showing that you can take it, uh, whether they do it or not. Um, and also, on the other hand, at a third hand, how many hands? <laughs> I've never done all, this is a trialectic, on the other hand, on the other hand, on the other hand, to be able to be supportive and accepting and validating uh, and be patient and waiting for the person to change. And so, you know, I... I used to uh, see Dr. Kernberg at times, much as I thought that uh, he modeled for me this capacity to be direct and be a straight shooter and confrontational uh, and non-judgmental. Um, but in fact, I saw him with some people because I used to see him interview people on my inpatient program for years every week. And there were some people that I think were not ready or able to respond to that kind of approach. And in fact, I think it, it would, to some degree, uh, frighten them and set them back. Um, so I think sometimes those would be people that didn't have that uh, scaffolding that would allow them to lean inward toward the pain that he was asking them to go to. Um, another thing, I asked Andrea about the difference between uh, the effect, what the effect of DBT and transference-focused therapy. And she said, well, the transference-focused therapy went more into her formative relationships, her early life relationships, the uh, dynamics that were set up, the patterns that were set up in her, and the forces that operated in her, uh, often beyond her awareness, that came from early life. So that the thing I said about understanding her perfectionism, which then sort of wrapped itself around her anorexia at a certain point, but also would, would, take, would go into her work life. Um, and, and obviously this sort of sharp uh, contract was different and also the level of uh, pushing and confrontation was sometimes different um, and not being so, uh, so quick to be encouraging or quick to be supportive. Uh, DBT was helpful for her to, into to tolerate the intense feelings that came up in, uh, in TFP. So, you know, again, it seems to me that there are two different emphases within any treatment, not just looking across these two different treatment approaches, but within any one treatment, you need to go back and forth between these, uh, or different, in, or as a parent, back and forth between uh, your dealing with your child that's uh, dealing with some unbearable circumstance, um, and and any good therapist or parent has to have both approaches in their repertoire, I think. Uh, one can fail a patient by being too skills-focused, too much validation, support, and encouragement, too much patience and warmth, when in fact what they really need at that point is a straight-shooting, concerted push, a demand for higher functioning, for expressiveness, uh, a bold and steep approach that says, you know, we can do this and we can take this. Uh, so, so you can fail a patient by staying too much on the supportive skills focus side. You can also fail a patient, as I mentioned, by being too pushy and demanding when they don't have the skills or the capacities or the support to make use of that kind of um, bare-knuckling uh, uh, approach and that, that cold turkey approach to your memories or your experience. Um, so I just think we're, you can see that... Uh, you can see two different uh, 
have many different features that are needed through the journey um, of getting better. You know, I have no summary statement about this. I realize I've covered a lot of territory. Some of it was already covered, and so it, I hope it didn't seem repetitive from what Andrea had talked with me about. But I just wanted to to name a bunch of these things. When I get an and 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 uh, I'd be interested in anybody's feedback about these, or whether they find it helpful to hear about these different ingredients. I'm I have this uh, hopeful fantasy that somebody's going to hear this and say, "Oh." X, Y, or Z is what I'm kind of missing. And I've got to push more in that direction or get more of that. Or maybe I've done this too, too prematurely. Or maybe I'm staying too long at uh, not getting into the unbearable story. So there you go. It's another, uh, uh, as the uh, Car Talk brothers would say, uh, another perfectly good hour you've spent uh, listening to me. And I hope it was a useful hour. And... Um, yeah, next week I'll be on the uh, Zoom format. Uh, it'll be different, and then I'll be returning with more podcasts. Uh, take care, everybody. Be well, and have a good entry into spring. Bye.